Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women. My name is Jen Grimmett, and with us today is Lashima Barr with Advocates for Health and Action, where she is the project coordinator for the ACES Resilience and Wake County Initiative, speaking on the topic of resilience and next steps. Welcome, Lashima. Thank you so much, Jen, for having me. Of course, of course. So maybe to help our audience, our listeners, um, gain a little insight about you, could you share a little bit about your background, the work that you do, all the good stuff that brings you with us today? Sure. There's a, there's a lot of stuff that brings me here today. Um, it's academically, I have an undergraduate degree in biology, had every intent of becoming a neuroscience um, researcher. And I did do some of that for a bit, um, and I found that during my time in research, I wanted to know more about the people, you know, um, we were studying, the communities and the populations. To me, it wasn't just enough to read a paper on um, social inequities and not understand what it's like to be on the ground. It wasn't enough for research to offer best practices in the classroom and not know what it was to be an educator. So then I intentionally joined Teach for America and I became a science teacher. And that's what brought me here to Durham, North Carolina. Um, That was then my passion for children and families continued to grow. Early in life, I'd made a commitment to love children so that they never had to feel the hurt that I felt personally, you know, as a child and to make sure families had the resources they need to be strong. And so that brings me to um, my role as an educator. Um, After an educator, I also did some laboratory work um, as a toxicology scientist, so I have that background. And just before my current role here as a project coordinator, I worked as a pre-parenting educator um, for Educate Tomorrow's Parents, a nonprofit here in in Raleigh. And so in my current role, uh, we are working on the ACES Resilience in Wake County Initiative, and that is about over 104 organizations all convening to build resilience against adverse childhood experiences, or also known as ACES and to prevent ACEs as well. So that's the work that we're doing. We're the conveners for that work. And we have um, law officers, educators involved, business leaders involved, um, community members involved in this initiative, all working towards the goal of preventing ACEs and building resilience in children and families. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, So resilience, that's a big word. Broadly speaking, how would you define it? Broadly speaking, it's just one's ability to be able to, I've heard it put us, not only to bounce back from challenges, but bounce forward. And so it's just our ability to experience a crisis or some sort of stress and to kind of be able to return to pre-crisis or, you know, pre-stress state. All right. What about in, more specifically, in the terms of the work that you do with the ACES program? In terms of the work I do with the ACES Resilience Initiative, um, just to kind of back up, learning how to cope with adversity is important um, in child development. That's normal. Anytime we have stressors in life, it's important for us to be able to know how to navigate those stressors but continue to make progress and move forward. Um, But when we are threatened, um, our bodies, they prepare us for action, right? That's a very normal reaction. if there is some danger, we need to be able to get out of there quickly or defend ourselves or um, to flee the scene. 
unfortunately, sometimes these stresses occur when there's no buffer there. You know, when we experience stressful situations and we have a buffer, those stressful situations happen in the presence of a caring, um, supportive adult, they can help us kind of return to that pre-stress or pre-crisis state. But in the absence of a buffer, that stress can turn into toxic stress. And so that's when that toxic stress can have um, lifelong consequences on the neurodevelopment of a child. Um, it really does alter the brain structure and how their brain develops. So then it impacts how they're able to deal with stress later in life as adults. And also from the Adverse Childhood Experiences study, you know, we've learned that that toxic stress actually can lead to later poor health outcomes, such as heart disease um, um, and other chronic health issues and other social issues as well. And so within the scope of the work that we do, we're here to see that children in currently experiencing those challenges and those traumas are able to weather that storm with the presence of a caring, healthy adult, whether it be by supportive parenting um, skills that will help them build resilience in their children or alleviating the stressors that might create those harmful, you know, stressful environments for families. You know, one of the... One of the things that has come up a lot in this series has been historical traumas. And, you know, I say that as plural because there are many. How do you see it following young girls of color as they move into adulthood? Oh, it's interesting to use the word follow. You know, it, it follows you. Um, there's historical trauma as a culture that can follow one. And then there's historical trauma in a family system that can also, you know, follow you. Okay. You know, unaware. Um, as a culture, I think the historical trauma that we as black and brown women have experienced, you know, has in a way shaped the way we view ourselves today shape the way we view one another. Um, we can lead to self-doubt, not feeling adequate, not feeling good enough, you know, or, you know, feeling like you have to achieve at a certain level just to be just as good, you know, um, as the other. Um, historical trauma has followed us in the form of impoverished communities. Um, generational poverty, it follows that way. And so then that creates, you know, gaps in opportunity and access. Um, it, it follows us in the shape of inequities, you know, those things. Um, family, a history, of, a history of family trauma is something that's very unique. About two weeks ago, uh, we did a resilience film screening. Resilience is which a, a documentary about the ACES study. Um, it talks about the effects of ACEs and later in life and the effect it has on children. And so we did a film screening um, in Wendell, North Carolina. And in that room, we had many, I'll say, um, seasoned uh, citizens. I don't want to say senior, I'll call them seasoned citizens. And it was so interesting to hear their perspective about the secrets that were kind of kept in families, you know, it was kind of like the history in families, you know, you don't tell the family business. And so a lot of families didn't reach out for help, you know, when they could have, or they didn't feel like they could get the help, you know. 
And so that history of you know trauma and not being able to get the services or the support that the family needed, that follows you know young girls. Could you give a few example or a couple of examples of that? Sure. Um, at the table, I was with um, some of the women that were there. They were older, and so they talked about how. I'll say back in the day where women didn't have a lot of options. You know, they stayed in a domestic violence situation because they didn't know where to go. They weren't the ones with the money, so they couldn't up and take their children and get out of the situation. They didn't know um, who to go to for help with domestic violence. Um, maybe their mother had experienced domestic, you know, domestic violence as a child, so then it was kind of the acceptable way that's, that's just how he is kind of thing, or that's just the way the situation is. And then so the cycle was just perpetuated. That might also be the case with um, sexual abuse going on with the family. Secrets may be um, kept. And so the cycle of abuse is perpetuated that way. Or whether it be mental illness, because historically you don't admit weakness. You just you handle it. You, you buckle down and you deal with it and you move on. So that, also that trauma you know, cycle can be perpetuated or can follow families through generations uh, and go unaddressed. I, I chose follows very intentionally because it, to me, emits a tone of kind of, I don't want to say, um, like danger on the horizon, right? And some use the term stalking. Um, and I feel like traumas can manifest in that way. As far, you know, it is, it's a danger on the horizon. You may not be able to see it, it's following you, but you may not know it's quite there, but you feel it. Right. Like, what would you have to say about that? Without getting deep into, like, the science-y stuff. Ooh, I love science. <laughs> um, I will say one quote that really sums it up um, in this book I love from Toby Tompkins. It says, it takes a lot of a, out of a woman to live a life in which she is always battle-ready. And so kind of what you're describing is that is that you may not see it, but you're living in a state of heightened awareness you know, you're always, you know, ready to go. And kind of history has dictated that, you know, black women become very masterful and, you know, masterful at juggling all these different things, but not always necessarily taking that time to meet your own needs. And so it is danger on the horizon. And then there's that burden of the strong black woman, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that can begin very early in life when um, you're carrying, you know, lots of weight. Um, and so there's that burden to be successful in your career, to raise a family, to be, you know, educated, to don't be too loud, don't, you know, all of these many, many different things and hats that you have to wear but the focus is on balancing those things and not necessarily stopping to make sure that you're actually happy, you know? And so while resilience is really innate because, again, the burden of the strong black woman, it is, I heard it put to say that, you know, that strength 
is our virtue, but also our vice. Because you cannot take the time to realize that it's not just about being strong, but it's also about being happy. But I also like to make a note that while saying that, you know, historical trauma, whether it be cultural trauma or a history of family trauma, um, can follow you, that it's not necessarily all bad, you know? It hmm. can create in one that resilience you know it creates that resilience we had to be resilient right and so one one thing we can do is to you know kind of shift our perspective on that to a strengths-based approach you know it's often easy to um i don't want to say easy but to kind of avoid the role of victim you know throughout but to be empowered you know, by your experiences um, to say that it did create this heightened sense of awareness, but maybe I'm a little bit more perceptive about people now. That's a strength, you know? Um, maybe I can think very clearly under stressful situations. That's a strength, you know? Um, maybe I am very protective, you know, that makes me a leader. That's a strength. And so I think it's important to also have that lens of, you know, a strength-based approach as well when we think about, you know, the history of black women um, to see, to leverage those strengths that these historical traumas have built in us, but also mitigate those risks, you know, moving forward. Well, and, you know, connecting the, the personal, the individual experience to a larger picture. And this is, like, this is a question that could be applied for an entire podcast. But, you know, policies, organizational structures, how do those shape the focus on resilience for black and brown girls and women? So the work around resilience as a whole is to acknowledge that people show up having had different experiences before they got to where they are in front of you. You know, I came to the table today with a, a chain of events, you know, that brought me here. And resilience is, the work around resilience is about acknowledging that and withholding assumptions about what we see out of a person and assigning, you know, meaning to their behaviors, but just kind of taking that moment to withhold judgment and understanding that what we're seeing is not just in this moment, but it could be, you know, the sum of the things that happened before this very moment. And so policies and organizational structures that support that or allow for that, you know, are important. That can be within the classroom. Um, and also policies and organizational, you know, culture that allows women of color to show up in a way, you know, that's comfortable for them, be it, you know, um, something as simple as my hairstyle. You know, that, that's important in building resilience because it tells me that who I am is okay, the way I show up is okay. Um, and those supportive organizational cultures and structures that allow me to ask for help without fear of maybe losing my job or um, fear of being seen as um, incompetent, those things are important. Um, and trauma-informed policies as well. That's, that's good for all people. That's just the general good best practice, but particularly for um, black and brown women and girls, you know, because 
of some of the historical traumas that they've experienced or some of the um, traumas that may have transpired before they've gotten to where they are. So those things are important. So what does a trauma-informed approach look like? So a trauma-informed approach means that I may inter- I'll interact with you in a way in which um, that I don't assume that your behavior is aggressive or um, you're combative. But again, taking that moment to be sure that I ask questions in a way that aren't um, judgmental to you because I don't know, again, your story. So just one simple example might be if I'm an, I'll go with the educator example. If I'm an educator in the classroom and my student um, has a reaction to a, you know, a directive or an order that I gave, I don't immediately jump to suspension or, you know, the harshest disciplinary action. I say, hey, you know, are you okay today? What's going on? Is something, you know, happening? So I take a moment to see past that behavior or this initial reaction and probe a little bit more to see what might be going on. And also having practices that don't further or re-traumatize our people we interact with. You mentioned, you know, specifically, and I'm sure that this, you know, is drawn from your personal experience as an educator, the need for a trauma-informed approach in the classroom, right? So how would you describe the relationship between education and resilience for young black and brown girls? It is imperative that we create classroom environments that facilitate resilience in young black and brown girls. That we acknowledge that they may show up a little bit differently than what we're used to or what's normal for us. It's important that we create opportunities that will close gaps in opportunities, you know, for lack of a better term. It's important that we are intentional about those things. And it requires not perfection, but just intentionality. Be intentional about the exposure um, to different opportunities for our black and brown girls. Be intentional about um, rethinking the way we discipline, you know, our girls of color because there just might be some differences in the way that they interact. It's not necessarily disrespect, but that's just how they talk. And so something that can be handled with a conversation doesn't have to be escalated. Um, And it's important to have educational environments that foster a sense of self-worth and value in our girls, be intentional about reminding them that their voice matters, um, that we are intentional about recognizing those leadership attributes in our young women of color, you know, um, and leveraging those, using them to our advantage, capitalizing on those things. Um, and there we can begin to, um, that, that kind of leads towards, you know, the work on creating equity, you know, for our black and brown girls is when they can know that their voice matters, you know, and that coupled or married with opportunities or access to opportunities, you know, can kind of create that pipeline to them, you know, for them to success. How can we, as a culture, do a better job of helping not only educators, but 
communities, more broadly speaking, understand the importance of that relationship? I know for me, working within the community, the first step is about educating our community, understanding some of the mechanisms um, by which trauma leads to those poor outcomes, you know, um, understanding why that happens, you know, um, the actual chem- brain chemistry that, you know, that happens, um, understanding, educating so that we can also break down some of the stigmas, okay. you know, within the community, um, make it okay for parents to ask for help so that they can raise resilient, you know, children so that they themselves can kind of build resilience. Um, And also changing the narrative that it's just a matter of something, resilience being something someone just has, Mm -hmm. but moving that to the understanding that resilience is a skill that you can actually build. within the community and there are specific ways we can interact with one another to you know, foster resilience and support a healthy community. Um, so those are things that I think as a community, you know, something that we can do as a broader community, just starting from a young age, you know, helping our children. If you're someone who works in a community, doing the best we can to make sure that families have access you know, to the services and supports that they need. Um, regardless of where they are. A couple of times you've mentioned the, I don't want to say, stereotype is not the right word. So feel free to connect me, correct me. But the stereotype, because I'm drawing a blank on the term I'm looking for. Stigma, maybe, of strong black women. Yeah. Right? You know, as White women need to be strong, but then there's a very, you know, a deeper conversation about presenting as strong, not showing vulnerabilities um, for women of color. How do we, you know, the education piece, super important, but in order to really teach our young black and brown girls the skillful development of resilience the folks teaching them have to break down their own vulnerabilities so how did like how 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 can we break through some of that i think it's important for black and brown girls to learn that it's safe to be vulnerable because it's not always, it may not always feel safe, you know, for them to be vulnerable. And that may be, you know, based on some experiences or just, you know, the way our culture is now. Um, that's important. And, and we can do that modeling, that vulnerability um, to them. You know, what does it mean to ask for help, you know, to share feelings? And that's okay. It doesn't mean that you're weak or any less, you know, strong. It's not a gold star for, you know, the strongest, but, um, and maybe shift focus from being strong in and of itself, but to being happy, you know, um, so that 
then the conversation lends itself to what does it mean to have your needs met and that it's okay to ask for what you need. Um, and your job is not to please everyone else and make sure everyone else is okay, but also make sure that you have what you need to be okay. And to ask for what you need takes vulnerability. And first, our girls need to be safe to ask those questions and safe to say that if I say that I need this, um, someone will be there to help me have that need met. Um, so I think that's one of the big things to break that down is to, I just feel like I'm repeating myself here, to make sure our girls feel safe to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as, a, as, as women, to let it be okay for other women to ask for help or to not have it together all the time. Um, even if it's, if it's a mom friend, it's, so, it's okay to ask for help, you know, with the kids, that it doesn't make you a bad mom. It doesn't make you a bad career woman. It doesn't make you a bad student. It doesn't make you, there's nothing wrong with you if you need a break. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing wrong with you if you need to go see a counselor and talk to someone. Um, and that's ways. Well, and so the next kind of shift, you know, looking at those social contracts, because I feel like that what you're describing is a social contract, right? So mm-hmm. what are some of the other types of social contracts that need to be broken for us to help? You know, and I say us as a broad community to help girls and women of color really be able to achieve that skillful development of resilience. For me, it is really one of the main ones is that that burden of the strong black women and also um, that burden to not be make to make sure that others are always comfortable, <laughs> you know, to not be too loud that you're, you're expected to um, behave in a way that's not offensive, you know, to others. Don't be too loud. Um, don't be too assertive. Um, or, or break down that myth of maybe the angry black woman mm-hmm. <laughs> along with that, because along with the strong black woman is, you know, the angry black woman and, and, and I'll, you know, speak from personal experiences that sometimes you, you don't say things, you know, in a certain way or you don't speak up because you don't want to come off um, as the angry woman. Or you may not voice your opinion or girls may not voice their opinion because they don't want to be seen in a certain light. Um, so that's another one. It's just taking off these made-up expectations, you know, that we have for our, our black and brown girls to behave and carry themselves in certain parameters so that it doesn't offend other people, so that um, people won't think less of them uh, and allow them to be who they are unapod- unapologetically, um, for them to show up loud, to show up strong, um, um, to be assertive, and that not be a bad thing. I think that... You have, a, you have touched on several approaches and systems that can lend to positive outcomes. Is there, are there any others that you would like to add 
I think one approach is starting with yourself, starting with ourselves, um, understanding also that how we show up to the table can frame things, understanding how my own personal experiences may shape the way I view things or view um, situations, that's important. Um, approaching resilience um, in blind and black women of teaching self-care from an early stage, that's important. Um, in our community, the self-care is not just necessarily having a manicure or pedicure, but understanding boundaries, you know, mm. boundaries and relationships and interactions, and that it's okay to have boundaries, that's important. Um, and I think for black and brown girls, sometimes and black and brown women, they may not feel empowered to assert those boundaries. So that's very important, um, that they feel empowered to be able to say this is as far as I'm willing to go and that has to be okay and respected. Um, Thank you. <laughs> you know, one of the more profound narratives that have come out of the series has been a very, an absence of feeling okay with taking care of oneself. That has, you know, emerged in different ways, right? But one of the first people I spoke with had mentioned if you are helping a drowning victim, then if you feel like they are pulling you under, then you can't hang on. And that analogy really struck me because it's a very pointed life and death example. And I feel like that self-care is like that. That generally as a culture, it's often treated as a luxury. But it's not. It's a necessity. Right. And, yeah. And what do you think? I love that analogy. It is because it it is very critical. And I think another thing, kind of going back to where I, I, I made the comment, I said that it needs to be okay for others to ask for help. Um, we also have to leave room for others to excel. <laughs> and I think sometimes, um, you know, it does take taking care of yourself first before you have the resources, whether that's emotional resources, financial resources, um, to be able to help others. You cannot draw water from an empty well, you know? And so it's fill your own bucket. It's like on the airplane when they tell you apply your phone mask before you pull out, you know, help someone else. But it's just so hard because it's been so ingrained into us, especially as black and brown women to take care of the family. You know, um, when we live in largely, you know, matriarchal, you know, family systems, it's, the woman is, is everything to all people. And then, you know, the last bit, you know, she's something to herself. And then it's not until, you know, um, a heart attack happens or, 
you know, some sort of high blood pressure or some sort of disease, you know, and then maybe she gets an epiphany that, oh man, I have to start taking care of myself. And so, and I think combating this idea that it's all or nothing, it, it can be both, you know, you can, um, you can take care of yourself um, and when you're able, help someone else. And, and our families have to be okay with that too. And so that's what I'm talking about, those boundaries too, because we also have to allow one another that space to say when it's too much. But if we're the person who's constantly pulling on the strong people or pulling, um, it makes it difficult, you know? So it's important for, um, you know, I myself to allow my, the women in my circle to say when and to respect their self-care um, needs as well and to hold the women in my circle and the young women in my circle accountable for that self-care, to make it a part of our culture, to make it, to make it the thing that we just do. That's just that's how we live life. We take care of ourselves. We take time for ourselves. We draw boundaries when necessary, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that I don't care about my family. It doesn't mean that I don't care about my friends. But in order for me to give the best possible to my family, friends, and my career, my occupation, then I need to be full. And so we move from just surviving, that survival instinct where you're running on empty all the time to where you're actually giving from the overflow, giving, you know, because, you know, your well is full. So you can freely give, you know, you can... Um, be more creative when you're, you know, you're well-rested, you know, at your job. Um, and you can just have a lot more to give when you're well taken care of yourself. So next steps. So looking at where, you know, we've talked a little bit about where we've come from, um, where we are now. How do those weave together to produce where we're going? Oh man, I think we are in such a wonderful place right now. We have so much opportunity. There's so many conversations around mental health and black women, black and brown women and um, young girls. There's so much conversation around mental health and African-American and you know, people of color communities as a whole, kind of trying to break down some of those stigmas around mental health. So that creates a very, very rich opportunity for us to begin to talk about wellness, you know, and have those conversations and shift our culture to wellness being a way of life. Um, and I think now we can couple that with some very practical steps, you know, understanding more about the science of resilience, you know, um, and then understanding practical things we can do like mindfulness, um, understanding where what it means to ground yourself if you find yourself getting out of your um, resiliency zone, I'll call it, you know, out of your zone. Um, so I think we're headed to a place where resilience is a common word. It's understood that it's a skill where we are practicing intentionally those skills that build resilience and those practices that support healthy mental, well, mental health, you know, and wellness. 
um, I think we're heading to a place where we have an opportunity to start now and raise a generation of young women who can fulfill their full potential, where they have access to opportunities, um, access to support and services when they need it, um, and that we see more equity, you know, um, and I know that's like a hot topic buzzword in a lot of places, but um, headed to a place where we understand that what is equitable might be different, you know, depending on the, the who is at the table, you know, what's equitable for me may not be equitable for the next woman, but we allow that flexibility and equity as well, what equity looks like. Um, well, thank you. So that is a lovely segue to the end cap of our discussion. As we mentioned at the beginning, you know, the theme of this podcast is learning, lifting, and leading social equity for and by black and brown girls and women, which is aligned with the 33rd Women's Conference that took place at Shaw University back in October. Can you make a few suggestions about how black and brown girls and women can be learning, lifting, and leading to bring about social equity? I would say for women, those of us who are in positions of influence, do all we can to create a pipeline of opportunity for those coming behind us. That's going to be very important. Um, And I am where I am because someone did that for me. Representation matters so much. I can remember being an undergrad, and this was early 2000s. (laughs) So um, still being shocked and surprised every time I saw a black woman with a PhD. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it wasn't that long ago. And so still being, you know, when I was an undergrad, shocked when I saw um, a black woman who was in an Ivy League school. You know, but now, thank goodness, we're in, a, we're in a place where we have more and more representation. So our young girls know that they have options for their futures. Um, so that matters. But, you know, creating as much as possible those pop lines to opportunity and access. Also, continuing to support um, inclusive education um, so that and inclusion is about a sense of belonging, um, but not just that belonging, but making sure there's, and that's, that's the beginning, you know, piece to, you know, moving towards equitable education, it's that our kids need to feel like they belong in the classroom and that there's a place for them there to learn. Um, and then supporting one another, um, having discussions like this one, open communication, um, amongst ourselves is important so that those of us who are in a position of influence can or who can change policies you know can do that so that we always you know remain connected to those communities that need our support so that um, their voices are heard at the table their perspectives are represented in the decisions so that equity is not an afterthought because it needs to be in the funding proposal 
but that it's an actual how we do business. Um, it's our process um, as well as the outcome that we want to see. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I have learned so much from you through this conversation and I certainly look forward with hopeful eyes that we can come back together again to just talk. Um, So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women with our guest, Lashima Barr with Advocates for Health and Action, where she is the project coordinator for the ACES Resilience in Wake County Initiative. Special thanks for this podcast go to Shaw University, Elon University, and the Raleigh Apex branch of the NAACP for supporting this important work. Also, a shout out to Starbucks Coffee in Durham, North Carolina for hosting us today.